You take your Bibles, we're going to turn to Proverbs 16, 18, and 19 first, and then we'll go to Sam, 1 Samuel. We established this principle last week. We're in a series called How the Mighty Have Fallen, looking at four falls in the book of 1 Samuel. You know this passage in Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. It's a perfect principle because it's functioning in all of our examples in 1 Samuel. The first one we saw last week with Eli. We're going to see Dagon this week. But it says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. It's Hebrew parallelism is what it's called. When a, a proverb has two parallel, parallel ideas and slightly different, but a lot of it's the same, just to kind of explain it even more clearly. So you can see pride, something goes, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So the word before is the word that's the same in both ends of that. So pride and haughty spirit are interchangeable, arrogance we would say, and before destruction and before fall, a fall and destruction are the same. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Destructions mean calamity. It means a complete fracture, breaking down, collapse of something entirely. A fall means to stumble, a disaster. And so you could see it, pride is, we'd say it this way, pride is a precursor to a downfall. And that's the word before. See, before destruction. In other words, if you're proud and arrogant and you don't get a hold of it and you don't get rid of it, you're headed toward calamity, disaster, a collapse, a fall. And so 19 says, if you know that, listen to this, it's better than to be lowly. It's better to be of not of a haughty spirit, or is it we would say a lowly spirit, which is the opposite of a haughty spirit. It's better to be that. Now listen to this. It says, than to be proud and divide the spoil. That's a military term. And what you're finding in 1 Samuel is that all of these proud uh, examples that we're giving of people or things that have a fall always, almost always is in a battle scene. And Proverbs depicts that. And I, and I point that out in this Proverbs because I want you to think of this. Pride is a battle. It is warfare. It is a fight. And it's better, he said, it's better to be poor and lowly. And we would say today, it's better to lose some battles than to win and get all the spoils. Uh, because what you need more than anything else is not a, vac a, a win on the battlefield, is a win in your own heart. And pride is a fight to stay lowly, to stay humble, to get rid of a haughty spirit. Um, hold your finger there now in, in 1 Samuel, and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians. I want to show you a famous fall and what the Bible says about the ones that we're looking at. Proverbs, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 6 starts, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. These are old, old Testament stories. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Those are sexual terms. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Watch, and here's our word. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So there, there is a fall. And, and then it gives another example. And then down to verse 11 says, now these things happen to them as an example. That's, see the inclusion? Verse 6, these are examples. Verse 11, these are examples. Why do we have the stories in the Old Testament? Why were they selected? Why were they put in there? Well, the Bible says they're examples for us. For what reason? They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Why? Because all of these examples that Paul uses are things of people who had incredible spiritual privileges. Read verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. They were all in the cloud. They saw God's presence. They were passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized in the Moses in the cloud. They ate spiritual food that was manna. They drank the spiritual drink the water from the rock, and it wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. He lists all of these blessings, and see, they had God's presence in their midst, they had all these blessings, they saw miraculous things happen. I mean, they had experiences like nobody else had experiences. But here's the, but with most of them, God was not pleased. So you can come to church, and you can have the Bible, and you can read it all the time, and you can hear sermons and listen to podcasts, and you can have a good community of believers that you're part of. You can have all of that, and it does not exempt you from a fall. So the warning to us is this in verse 12. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, based on all that, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he Fall. So I want you to know, falls are not just for really evil people like Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. It's not just for false idolaters like the Philistines and Dagon. It's not just the Goliaths of this world or even the Sauls. Listen, all of us, unless we heed the examples that are used in Scripture, all of us should take heed lest we fall. Why? Because no one is immune from pride. No one is immune from thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was all that until God made him like an animal for seven years. Belshazzar, the very night that he took the temple articles and used them in a profane way, that night the handwriting came on the wall and the kingdom was taken away from him the very night he did it. I don't know if you know, I know you know Humpty Dumpty, right? Does everybody know Humpty Dumpty? Right? Humpty Dumpty, say it with me. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And then what happened? Okay, now you know that. So what's the history behind it? Humpty Dumpty was not in Alice in Wonderland first. I hate to tell you he wasn't. Right? Actually, the best understanding is that Humpty Dumpty was the name of a cannon. It was a cannon during the English Civil War in the 16, middle 1600s. It was on a wall in a city called Colchester. The parliamentary army was coming to take that city, and one of the cannons, which was the biggest one that they relied on, set on top of a big wall on a castle. The parliamentary army attacked them, blew out the wall underneath it, and that cannon fell down to the ground and smashed into pieces. And because of loss of that ability, they lost that battle. And the king actually got his head cut off. (laughs) And many people died because of it. They couldn't put it back together again. They lost everything. Humpty Dumpty's fall, what? What? 
was because they thought that they were invincible. They were in the castle. They had the cannon, but they lost. See, he had a great fall. That's all of us today, I think, if I can say it reverently. There's a little Humpty Dumpty in all of us. And that's why the Bible says you ought to attack pride before destruction comes. Right? Before, right? Before the fall comes. You ought to be able to go. So we want to do that tonight. Now we have, let me review with you. Turn to Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 4. Three things we want to look at in each one of these fall episodes. There are three things we're going to look at and learn lessons from. The first one we said last week was the physical description of the person or object of pride. Then we see there was a great fall that takes place. And the word fall is actually mentioned in all these stories. And then third, subsequently, there is an exaltation of the person that was lowly. We would call it a great reversal takes place. If you remember, as I'm turning there, 1 Samuel chapter 4, let me review a little bit from last week and we're going to go on from there. You know that Israel had pride going into battle. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 3, they're going to go out to battle against the Philistines and they think that everything's great. They go out to battle and in verse 3 it says, and when the people came to camp, the elders said, why has the Lord defeated us? Well, before in chapter 3, they lost a few thousand men, 3,000 I believe. And they can't understand it, so they ask the diagnostic question, why? Why is it that we are defeated? And notice it's not the Philistines who beat them, who beat them. The Lord defeated them, so they know something is wrong. When you lose a battle in Israel, something's wrong spiritually. They know that. So they think this. Listen, ask yourself if this is you. They think that the answer to the question, why did the Lord defeat us, is a religious question. It deserves a religious answer. What do I mean by that? Here's what they do. You know what they said? We're missing something. And they are. But they don't know the exact what they're missing. You know what they think they're missing? They need the ark of God. <laughs> they need to go get the ark. And so they think the answer is religious. They don't understand it's a relationship problem. The reason why God's not with them is because they have Hophni and Phinehas as judges, and they're corrupt, and they're immoral. They don't take the sacrifices right. They're sexually deviant, and Eli puts up with it. So the Ark of the Covenant, it's called the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of God, the Ark of the God of Israel, and just plain old the Ark, many, many, 20-some times in the next few chapters. So if you don't know this, let me just stop for a second. Let me explain to you so it makes sense to you. The Ark of the Covenant, and this is a picture of it, it's a rendition. Nobody knows exactly for sure, although the, te- the Old Testament tells us what it looks like in Leviticus. All right? But here's what it represents. The Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. Um, you could not touch it because you were not allowed to get close to God, especially touch it. You, we learned in 2 Samuel 6, the story of Uzzah, who uh, they were carrying it, and it stumbles because they weren't carrying it as God told them to. He reaches out to steady it. He touches it, and God strikes him dead. So it was no small thing, right? This is God, his presence, and you don't get that close to God unless you're following his procedures, right? So here's how big the ark was. It was four feet long, right? I'm sorry, did I have this right? Four feet 
I'm sorry, yeah, four feet long, two and a half feet tall, and two and a half feet wide. It was a box. It was a chest. You know, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, an Indiana Jones version of it, it was way bigger than that. It was very small. It was not big at all. And it was overlaid with gold, and it had four corners on it. On each one of the corners, there was an overlaid gold uh, loop. And they put these two poles, actually two poles through the four corners, and they would carry it that way. And on top of it were two, as you can see there, they were cherubim. And these were the anointed cherubs that cover, which some commentators believe that one of these originally in creation was Lucifer. The Bible calls him in Ezekiel 14, the anointed cherub that covers. Covers what? Covers the glory of God. Cherubim had six wings, not two. And with two of them, Isaiah 6 says they covered their feet and they covered their face and their eyes and two of they float, they fly. Because um, you couldn't be in God's presence and look directly on him. And so two of their wings had to cover their face because they were so close to God, you can't look on him and live. That's how holy God is. So the cherubim are there and they cover what's called, you can see it there, um, it's a slab that goes across of gold, completely covered in gold, and it is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the word that we get in the New Testament four times. It's used propitiation. Um, it's where God made sacrifice, and they would put the blood on the mercy seat, and God would speak from the mercy seat. God would communicate from it, and he would also have the sacrifice once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and the only piece of furniture in there was this. There was no other furniture in that room. In, in ancient Near East practices, in the temples of God and of pagan gods, there were multiple rooms, but the back farthest room was the room was called the Room of Power, and in the very center was some sort of statue or representation of the god. And the tabernacle had rooms going this way, backwards. The last one in the back was the Holy of Holies with the curtain in front of it. Cherubim were embroidered into the curtain, separating it between that and the holy place. And the only piece of furniture inside was this. Inside of that ark, it's pictured there, was the pot of manna from the wilderness, Aaron's rod that budded, and the two tablets, which were the Ten Commandments. That is why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Because how you had a relationship with God and how you had his presence be able to remain in the camp was your obedience to him. So he would provide and he would give success and fruitfulness if you obeyed his word. Israel, now listen, I tell you all that because Israel thinks that they're going to go get the ark and use it religiously and forget about the relationship part. They're not, they're not worried about what's inside the commandments that they've disobeyed and the ungodliness and how Hophni and Phineas have disobeyed how to handle the sacrifices and all that. They've disobeyed all of that. But here's what they think, because this is what the Philistines, look at verse 7 of chapter 4. It says, And when the Philistines, verse 6, heard the noise, the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting that can't mean the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to camp, the Philistines were afraid. Here's why. What could they said? A God has come into the camp. That's what they would say. That's how they viewed it. They viewed that the statue 
or in this case, the ark represented the God. And so the God is coming to the camp. Listen, because it's important. Culturally, in the ancient Near East, if you defeated a, a, a country's army, you also defeated their God. So in this case, the ark has come in, and they know about the ark and how it destroyed everybody in Egypt and the ten plagues, and they know how powerful Yahweh is, and they're afraid, but they fight anyways, right? Israel doesn't take the ark out by faith into the battle. They take it out because it's their religious thing to do. It's what the pagans would do. Hey, if we couldn't win before, let's go get the ark, and it's, I would say, kind of like we would say, a gigantic, divine, lucky charm. A four-leaf clover, a rabbit's foot, right? And they think that they can, listen to this, they think that God is with them when he, they are not with him. And they make a huge mistake. Here's what it is. They separate his presence from his power. Okay, let me say it again. The pride and the mistake of pride was they thought that they could separate his presence from his power. And by that I mean this. They wanted his power to work for them, but not in them. See, they wanted his power in their warfare, but they didn't want it in their worship. They wanted God's power, but they didn't want his presence. See, they said, God, we're great if you show your power to rule over our enemies, but we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want your presence so close that we have to do all the things that you ask us to do. And you would say, Pastor Walker, how could they ever make a mistake like that? Let me give you some modern examples of how we do it in the 21st century. We pray, but we don't ever pray, some of us, very often. And we don't pray very seriously or consistently. And we don't usually have much of a prayer life. And so we have 9-11 prayers most of the time. And we pray most seriously and most often when we find ourselves in a tight spot or an emergency situation. But most of the time, for some of God's people, they don't have time in his presence regularly. It's not like we're praying two or three times a day. It's not that you're reading your Bible every day. And we use prayer, listen, we use prayer because we use God. And we get really serious about it, and prayer becomes a religious thing. So we know that we're in a really difficult situation, and we haven't sought God a lot of the time on a regular basis, but now we're really in a spot, and we're really in trouble, so we really start to get serious about it. A.W. Tozer called this the utilitarian God. And by that, he meant that you use him. See, the pagans used their God and, and, and tried to please them so that they would act on their behalf. See, God won't be treated like that. He won't be used. He won't be manipulated. He won't be tucked away in the corner of your life and hardly ever a thought of until you really need him. And then you bring him to the forefront and say, God, we got a battle to fight today. Go ahead and do your stuff. See, we treat prayer like that, and then when we pray in those 9-11 emergency situations and we call on God, even though we don't hardly ever do it very much, it's not out of a relationship too much, and then God doesn't answer, or he doesn't answer the way we want, and then some people have the audacity to actually get angry about it. God, why aren't you there for me? Why aren't you answering? Although we haven't been there for him hardly at all. We do that with church attendance. We treat church as a, as a religionist duty. So I know of people who 
I haven't seen you a while. Where have you been? And they tell me, you know, blah, 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 and this, that, and the other. But they're having really struggles in their marriage, or they're having a really problem with this, or they're about to lose their job, or they really need God to come through with them. So they come more often. They come to Sunday morning, and they even come maybe to a couple other services. And we think that, God, I'm just going to take the ark out now. See, it's my duty now. See, maybe if I do this, God, and I put you out there, you'll do for me what I want you to do. Service. We treat ministry like that. That maybe if I do a little bit more for God, he'll do a little bit more for me. Holiness. We have a Sunday holiness and a Monday holiness. We come to church, we want to look good, but Monday, it might be difficult to find out or to, you know, understand that you're a Christian. See, we want God to come close to us, but not at the price of us coming close to him. See, we don't want God for God's sake. We want God in our life for our sake. See, we need a theology of what it means to draw near to God. You ought to study that in Old and New Testament about how people come to God and get close on their terms and usually end up dead. And the difference when they come close to God on God's terms and the blessing that's poured out. See, pride is this. Pride is fighting against disconnecting God's presence from his power. See, I want God in my life, but I don't want it at that price. So Israel's pride resulted in destruction because taking the ark out didn't do any good for them because in that battle, they don't lose 3,000. It says in verse 10 of chapter 4 that you lose 30,000 foot soldiers. And so as a result, the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive by the Philistines. And they take it to a city in chapter 5, if you look there, Ashdod, which was their capital. There was five major cities in Philistia. And they took it to Ashdod, and they had defeated the Israelites. And so you know what that means. We told you that means that they'd also defeated Yahweh, and that God was defeated. And so they want to bring the Ark to their god Dagon and his temple. And they take it in. Dagon was the god of harvest, literally of corn. And they put it next to him in the center of the back room of their temple, which was their power room. And you have this little teeny box, the Ark of God, set next to Dagon, the big... Now, the Dagon statue or idol was very large. The first time it falls, everybody's shocked because it's so big, they can't believe that it fell over. And it takes a bunch of people to come in and they have to set it back up. Now, the second time... You get an idea of how big it is because it falls to the ground and his head comes off and the hands come off, which means when they both hit the ground, most likely meaning that his hands were extending out like this near his head and when they hit the ground, hands across the head, all of it came off. So it's got this little teeny small arc next to this big gigantic statue with hands up like this huge statue next to each other. So you got, here. remember the description of size? You got big Dagon, little teeny ark next to it. That's why, look at chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4, they both have the word behold. That is a nice way of saying the Philistines flipped out. They were shocked. 5.3 says, and when they rose up early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now remember what that means. 
Yahweh was defeated and Dagon was the victor. But they come in the very next morning and what happens? Dagon has fallen, huge Dagon, down before small little ark Yahweh. And who's bowing to who? Well, Dagon's bowing to him. Now, if that only happened one time, the conclusion would have been that Yahweh was bigger and stronger than Dagon, which was true. But it doesn't just happen one time. Two times. It was no fluke. So they come out the next day, and they come back in, and verse 4 says, Behold again, because they're shocked. They thought that must have been just an unusual earthquake or something happened to knock it over. This time, it's not only knocked over on the ground before the ark, but its head is cut off and its arms are cut off. You know what that means? Everyone would have looked at that and said, there was a battle last night in this temple between the two gods and Dagon lost big time and got his head and arms cut off. That was one of those things you did to show that that king or God was powerless. Powerless. Dagon cannot get back up. And not only is it proved that he is not, is bit, Yahweh's bigger and stronger, listen, but with his head and hands cut off, it proves that he's not even a God at all. He's not even God at all. So in pride, they put the ark next to their God, thinking it was a fluke. But they're realizing this, that their God really isn't even a God. Now you think, wow, that's going to be enough for these people. It's not. They take the ark of God and they take it all to all the other four cities, make the circuit. I would call it, they're making a victory tour, right? And they go to all the other cities. And what you find out next is there's this big contrast. Remember what happened to Dagon's hands? Cut off. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 11 talks about, and the hand of the Lord was heavy on them. Dagon's hands are powerless God's hands are powerful. Every city they go to, God goes into that city. It's like an invasion. God goes into that city. Everybody gets sick. A lot of people die, and they want to get rid of the ark, and they all surrender and say, take it on to the next city. You know what it means? Listen, Israel's learning this lesson. God doesn't need you. He didn't need the Israelites to fight the Philistines. He didn't need to do it. He could just be there and by himself, he can handle all of them. Do you realize that tonight? Do you realize that? Do you know who the God we serve is? He's not a religious relic. He's not someone that you use. He's not someone that you manipulate. God is a God whose hand is heavy. Remember, it means kabod. He's weighty. He's powerful. But you can't, listen, you can't separate his power from his presence. The Philistines endured the power, but they didn't want anything to do with his presence because they didn't worship God. And by the way, neither did Israel, truthfully. God, you know what he wants if you want him in your life? He wants you to want his power and his presence. He wants you to want to obey his word and experience his power. Now you think, after it was seven months of that, it says Dagon falls on his face to the ground. It's a big fall. But the ark, on the other hand, is taken captive, but there's a huge reversal because they put the, the ark back on a cart and they say, um, let me get rid of this thing. Seven months later. So they put this gold offering, build these gold rats and tumor things, and they send it back to Israel. And they say, if this cart, when we let it go, it goes back to Beth Shemesh, I'm sorry, Beth Shemesh, 
if it goes back there on its own instead of the way we think it should go, we'll know that God's hand was against us. Well, it goes exactly with the same way they didn't think they wanted it to go, and God was against them. And it comes back to the city, a little border town, Beth Shemesh, house of the sun is what it means. And it's a little border town between Judah and Philistia, always in a fight, because they're always battling for those borders. And the men of Beth Shemesh come out, they offer a sacrifice to God, and they haven't learned anything, because what do they do? At the end of chapter 6, it says they take off the mercy seat, and they look inside, and they got close to God, but didn't follow the rules, and 70 of them, God strikes 70 of them dead. Why? Here's why. Listen. Because pride is an ongoing fight. We never get past, we never get past fighting against pride. No matter how many stories you hear, no matter how many examples you see, no matter how much happens in your life, no matter how much, oh God, I should know that by now. And we don't. You know why? Because that's a struggle that we all face regularly. Pride. Thinking more of ourselves and less of God. Using God, manipulating God, thinking that we can have his power but not his presence. Can I tell you, that's a fall that we can all all consider in our life is a regular fight. We have to be willing to say, God... I need to be humble, and I need to work at it every single day. To stay little and stay low is a fight that is ongoing in our lives. You may be fighting it tonight, and you need to beware because pride goes before destruction and hearty spirit before a fall. So before the destruction, before the fall, here's what we do tonight. We get on our knees and we say, God, help me to stay little and low and humble. Help me to connect your power and your presence in my life so that I can bring you the glory that you could be kabod in my life as you alone deserve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. Lord, pride is an idol like Dagon, and we have to destroy it in our lives. All of us, no matter who we are, Father, we're going to struggle with pride independence from you, thinking that we can handle it, thinking that we don't need you until an emergency comes. Father, we need dependence. We need reliance on you, and we need to demonstrate it by the way we focus on coming to church and prayer and Bible reading, not because it's our religious duty, but because we have a relationship with you, because we want to keep these two things together your power and your presence in our lives because when we separate them, pride comes. And not far behind it is destruction and a fall. Help us, Lord, to stay humble and little and low in your sight that you might reverse it and like you did the ark, you exalt it and show what you're really all about and who you really are. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.